Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, carrying on our continuing dialogue about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Well, today I'd like to talk about a theme that emerged in a recent conversation I had with a few leaders. The theme is delegation. And I'd like to offer some perspectives on delegation today that hopefully will be helpful to you in whatever ministry leadership capacity uh, you hold to understand how better to delegate and by doing so, uh, improve your organizational performance, hopefully improve your performance as a leader, and overall make a greater kingdom impact. So some perspectives today on delegation, why it's important, why it matters, how to do it better, and some reasons we struggle to do it well. First of all, let's understand what delegation is and what it's not. First of all, delegation is not dumping work on other people. It's not giving up what you don't want to do. It's not cherry-picking the most enjoyable parts of your job and then shuffling the rest off on some other person. That's not delegation. That's dumping, and that's not what we're about today. Delegation is instead empowering. It's empowering people by giving them real opportunity to lead or to decide or to do. When you delegate something to someone as a task or as a responsibility or as an opportunity, you're expecting them to follow through on it and you're giving them uh, the opportunity to lead, decide, or do this particular thing. So delegation is empowering. It's also enlarging your organization. Delegation enlarges your organization by giving away control of the organization to others. You know, as a president, I am responsible for everything that happens at Gateway Seminary, but I do not control everything that happens at our school. Good delegation means that I give away control of the organization by empowering other people to lead, decide, or do certain things on my behalf and on behalf of the organization as a whole. And in doing that, I definitely give up control. So let's start with this perspective on delegation by shifting what we mean by the concept. Delegation is empowering people, and enlarging the organization. It is not dumping on others what we don't want to do, what we find less desirable, or what are the uglier or uh, or unseemly parts of our job description. Now, even though we value delegation as empowering and enlarging, it's still really hard for many of us to do. Now, I've identified about 10 reasons that I observe why leaders have problems delegating. Let's walk through these 10. Number one, the first reason is we like doing stuff. We just like doing stuff. For example, I really like teaching. And so it's tempting for me to put myself on the schedule at at Gateway Seminary and to do even more teaching because I like teaching so much. But if the seminary is going to grow, 
It's going to be healthy. It's going to make the impact it needs to make. I have to empower others to teach and enlarge the organization by scheduling different people to teach. And while I might might really like doing it, the organization is healthier and the impact is greater when I don't do it so much. What do you like to do? Oh, I love preaching. I like administrating. I enjoy counseling. I really like problem solving. I like financial detailed analysis. Well, some of what you like to do, you should be doing. But just because you like doing something doesn't mean it's automatically what you should be doing for the good of your organization. So one of the reasons that delegation is difficult is we like doing stuff. A second reason is that we get value, our esteem, from doing things for other people. We feel good about ourselves when we do something for someone else. And so we don't want to delegate that away because if we, do, if we delegate a task away that we really enjoy doing and people value or esteem us more highly when we do those things, then naturally we're going to want to hold on to those tasks. A third reason delegation is difficult is we like being appreciated. We like people to pat us on the back and say, job well done. We notice that. Thank you for doing this for me. We like being appreciated. We like being noticed. Who doesn't like a word of appreciation or someone saying thank you for something that we've done? Well, when you delegate away the work that people see you doing and other people do that work, then they get the accolades and you may not feel as appreciated for who you are as a leader. Another reason that ministry leaders particularly have a problem delegating is we don't make anything. So doing something makes us seem useful. We don't make anything. At the end of the day, we don't produce a certain number of cartons of product that we can turn out and say we met the quota. We don't produce any tangible thing. We work with people. And conversion and sanctification are sometimes hard to measure. And relative aspects of spiritual growth and even relative aspects of numerical growth in a congregation or in a ministry are sometimes really hard to measure. So because of that, if there are a few things that we do that really are quantifiable and measurable, it's hard for us to delegate those away because if we do, it may not seem like we're really doing anything in the organization except telling other people what to do, and nobody really wants to be known for that. Well, here's the fifth reason that we have a struggle with delegating, and that is, frankly, we're arrogant. We think we do everything well. Now, of course, you wouldn't be this way, but I'll confess to it. Sometimes I think I do things well, and therefore they, I need to do them so that we have some kind of quality control in the organization and things are done well. I once worked with a pastor who worked himself literally into an emotional and physical breakdown because he could not delegate. And when I asked him, why don't you let some other people in your church do some of these tasks? He said, because things have to be done right. Therefore, I need to be involved in doing them. Oh, man, how arrogant. 
He believed the myth that he did everything well and that quality and excellence was determined by his functionality. Well, number six, we also have a struggle delegating because we're insecure. We, we don't want others to show us up. In other words, we don't want to delegate a task to someone else because they might do it better than we've been doing it. And if that happens, they might get more accolades, more praise, more notice or notoriety than we received when we did that particular task. We're insecure. We don't want others to show us up by exceeding us in what we've been doing in the organization. Well, number seven, we are afraid of being held responsible for the actions of others. Now, this is one of the real challenges of leadership, and that is that we are responsible for everything that happens in our organization on our watch. And when you delegate tasks to other people, including the opportunity and the responsibility to do them, and if they don't perform up to standard or things are left undone, it reflects badly on you. And you don't have to be in leadership very long to have had the experience of being critiqued, criticized, attacked, or blamed for something that someone else under your direct supervision did not do. And so, we're afraid of being held responsible for the actions of others, and therefore we don't delegate. Well, if I haven't hit you yet on the reason that you don't delegate, I've got three more. Let's see how we do on these last ones. Number eight, we underestimate the capacity of other people. We underestimate others. And companion with this is number nine, we overestimate ourselves. You know, there are uh, people around us who will bloom and blossom and come to a flourishing standard of performance that can only happen when we empower them and give them opportunity to do things in an organization. We underestimate them, so therefore we don't delegate, we hold them back. Or we overestimate ourselves, as I've already said, thinking that we are somehow the arbiters of excellence, the guarantors of things being done well, and that we somehow can do everything the best ourselves. Well, finally, the last reason we don't delegate is we're too busy or we're too disorganized. What I mean by this is you don't know uh, what to delegate because you don't have your work organized well enough to know what needs to be done. And so you can't delegate because you don't have things organized well enough. Therefore, you wind up doing everything yourself because you're making it up as you go rather than having an intentional plan of attack or action as you move into the day. Therefore, you can't delegate because you don't have your work organized well enough to know those parts you can give away and those parts you have to do yourself. Well, we've shifted the concept of delegation from dumping to empowering and enlarging, and we've considered 10 reasons why delegation is so difficult. Now, three myths about delegation. The first myth is this. It lessens your workload. If you think by delegating, you're going to have less work to do, you believe a myth about delegation. Delegation does not lessen your workload. It only changes the work you do. So, for example, rather than spending my time doing the work of the president's office at Gateway Seminary, I have to spend time planning the work 
laying out how I want the work done, and identifying the objectives that we will know we've uh, achieved when the work is done well. That takes time. And then once I've invested that time, then I can meet with the president's office staff and delegate to them the tasks, the responsibilities, the opportunities that I want them to fulfill. Then they do that. And while they're doing that, I'm doing other work that is reserved for the president that leads us to being able to do more delegation, more sharing of opportunity and responsibility. The cycle just goes on. And so delegation doesn't lessen my workload. It only changes the work that I do. I don't work less hours because I'm a good delegator. No, I work the same number of hours. But I'm doing work that I believe is more productive, more reserved entirely for what only the president can do. And because I'm able to delegate and then do the work that I need to do, our organization expands and enlarges as a result. So the first myth about delegation, it lessens your workload. It does not. It only changes the work that you do and perhaps the kind of work that you do. Second myth about delegation is it makes your life easier. It really does just the opposite. It only complicates your life as your organization grows. For example, here at the seminary, think how simple my life would be if we all only offered one class every semester and I taught it. I would know exactly what was going to be taught in that class. I would know exactly what was going to be said. I would know exactly how it was going to be conducted, and I would be able to deal with that situation directly. But think how small our seminary would be if I did that. So I've chosen to delegate the responsibility for the academic program to a vice president and through him to charge about 35 full-time and another uh, 35 to 50 adjunct professors with the tasks of teaching the curriculum of Gateway Seminary. Now, this doesn't make my life easier. Believe me, it only complicates my life. Because now I have a lot of people with a lot of different expectations and a lot of different performance levels and a lot of different perspectives all out there teaching for which I will ultimately be held responsible. So if you think delegation makes your life easier, you are believing a myth about delegation. It doesn't make your life easier. It only complicates your life as your organization grows. Then here's the third myth. It's delegation saves time. It does not save time. There is no way to save time. There is only a way to use time differently. And so delegation doesn't save time. It just changes the way you use your time so that when you delegate opportunity, responsibility to others and they fulfill those things, yes, you're not now spending time doing those things, but you should be spending time productively doing other things. So there is no possible way to save time. There is only different ways to use time. And so the myth that delegation saves time needs to be rejected and better understood as delegation gives me the opportunity to use my time the most productive way possible. So three myths about delegation. 
It lessens your workload? No, it only changes your workload. It makes your life easier? No, it only uh, complicates your life as your organization grows and becomes more complex. And delegation saves time? No, it only changes how you use your time and hopefully enables you to use it more productively. Well, on the podcast so far, we've shifted the concept of what we mean by delegation. We've considered at least 10 reasons why delegation is difficult for many leaders. And we've considered now three myths about delegation. But as we come to the second half of the podcast and really the focus of the proactive part of what we can do to become better at delegation, let me now give you seven keys to successful delegation. Number one, select competent people. The best you can afford are the best you can recruit, the best you can find. The first step in effective delegation is to select competent people. Now, I realize that some of us work in organizations like the seminary where we have 150 employees and we're certainly able to attract a level of competence because of the compensation that we provide and the uh, opportunities that the seminary presents. We're able to attract a certain level of leader into that role. But even in an organization like ours, we're going to have some jobs where we just can't find the most competent people, perhaps in the whole world, to do that job. But we're going to try to find the most competent people we can find right now with the opportunities and the resources and the compensation we can offer. Who's those most competent people for right now? But that's in an organization. What about in a church? The hard reality is a lot of the delegation that needs to go on in church ministry by church leaders is delegation to volunteers. Now, you might say, well, you really can't delegate to volunteers. Oh, yes, you certainly can. In fact, that's the way you build a growing, vibrant church ministry is by learning to train, motivate, lead, delegate to volunteers. So even in a volunteer context where you're building youth ministries, children's ministries, preschool ministries, worship ministries, community-based ministries, recovery ministries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, even when you're building all of these things with volunteer teams, select the most competent people you can. The most competent people you can afford or that you can recruit or that you can find. Select competent people. Number one. Number two. Train the people you select. Now, two aspects of this training are important. When you are going to delegate something to someone, first, train them in the skills necessary to fulfill that delegation effectively. Skills. This means you may need to teach someone how to read curriculum or how to understand lesson planning or how to organize a schedule uh, for workers, for example, in a preschool. You may have to teach someone the skills uh, required to hand out the bulletins, to supervise the parking lot, to clean the bathrooms. Whatever skill it is you want transferred, train the people you select in those skills. But secondarily, and perhaps even more importantly, you also have to train the people that you select in the culture and in the expectations you have in the context of that work culture that you're creating. For example, uh, here at Gateway Seminary, we recently employed a couple of new vice presidents. 
These are highly skilled men. They came to us with earned degrees, professional certifications, and years of experience as they've grown up through the ranks and developed their careers. They had the skills. You don't get hired as a vice president if you don't have the skills. But the second aspect of training they did not have, and that is they did not understand the culture in which they were coming to work and what that meant and how to interpret, understand, and work effectively in this context. Now, culture includes many things, but one aspect of the culture is just simply relating to me as president and to my work style as a president. And so it was important in those early months of these new vice president's service at our school that they receive training from me, not so much about skill development, which they had, but about the cultural development of how to work in this organization and how to work with me and the work style that I prefer. So the first step in delegation is select competent people. The second step is to train those competent people in two things, the skills necessary to perform the delegated task, responsibility, or opportunity, and second, the cultural demands or expectations of the organization or the church where that person's going to be serving and what they can do to be successful in that cultural context. Third, the third key to successful delegation is to trust the people that you select and train. Now get those both. Number one, select competent people. Number two, train people that you select, both skills and culture. Now three, we're going to trust the people that you've selected and trained. Trust the people. Now, trust means that you are going to take a risk and allow another person to fulfill a responsibility for which you will be held accountable. That's trust. You know, every word that's said, spoken, written, or communicated at Gateway Seminary ultimately is my responsibility. So I've selected and trained, and now I'm trusting that the people I've selected and trained will fulfill the mission, vision, and values of our organization and work effectively in the culture that we've created so that people might understand how to advance the work that we're doing together. Trust. So, select, train, trust. Number four. The fourth key to successful delegation is to empower people, empower people who serve on your behalf. Now, empowering means two things. First of all, it means that authority that you give another person has to equal the responsibility you've also given that person. Authority has to go with responsibility. For example, here at the seminary, I tell our vice presidents, I want fully empowered vice presidents. Fully empowered. That means they have significant responsibility that's been placed on them, and they have the authority to make the decisions in their area. Authority and responsibility. Now, because I've selected competent people and trained them and I trust them, they have a sense of where the boundaries are. And when they need to come and talk with me about something before they exercise their authority or fulfill their responsibility, I'm certainly open to having those conversations. But I don't want them thinking that every time anything goes wrong, they have to come running to me 
They have the authority and the responsibility, and that's part of being empowered to do your work. Now, maybe you've been in a situation where you've been given significant responsibility, but no authority to fulfill it. Or maybe you've been given significant authority, but no clear responsibility of what you were supposed to do. Both of these things have to go together. And so let's say that you are selecting a new person to be the children's ministry director of your church, and you have trained that person, both in skills and culture, to work in your organization, and now you're trusting them to fulfill the training they received because of the selection process they've come through, and now you're going to empower them. Meaning that this person is told as a volunteer leader in our organization, you have both the authority and the responsibility to do your job. Meaning you can select the people who work with you. You can make recommendations to the church about financial and make requests about financial needs that your area of ministry may have. You can problem solve with parents who are difficult and sometimes have to be managed. You can do whatever you need to do. You have the authority and the responsibility as a volunteer leader in our ministry organization or in our church to do what's needed. That's part of empowering people is you make sure they have both the authority and the responsibility to act. The second part of empowering people is that you make sure they have the resources to support the expectations you have in their position. Now, resources primarily in an organization mean two things, money and people. So you want to make sure that when you empower someone, you delegate to them in such a way that you've empowered them to have both the authority and responsibility to do a particular task, that you then also empower them by making sure they have the resources necessary to support and meet, fulfill the expectations you have for that position. And those resources normally mean that they have both the money and the personnel to get the job done. Nothing is more discouraging to someone to have something delegated to them and then be told that they do not have the resources available to them to do the job. Now, every organization faces resource shortage. I understand that. But that also means you have to dial back the expectations so that the resources and the expectations come together and meet each other. Well, number five, a fifth key to successful delegation is to supervise consistently, meaning that you coach and correct a person that you've delegated a task or responsibility or an opportunity to, that you coach and correct them rather than criticize and demean them. When you delegate an opportunity or responsibility to someone, come alongside them and coach and correct as they go along. Don't just criticize and demean them if they don't perfectly fulfill the responsibility that's been given. You know, even if you select competent people, train them to lead, trust them to lead, empower them to lead, they're still going to need supervision constantly, consistently present in their lives where they understand that someone is holding them accountable, someone is providing them support, someone is giving them good supervision. That doesn't mean that you criticize or demean them it does mean that you coach them and correct them and keep them on track with the delegation, delegated tasks at hand. Number six, another key to effective delegation is to expect mistakes, fix them, and affirm continued effort. I recently had an employee here at Gateway Seminary that made a mistake. And so I 
uh, asked to see that employee, and I said, hey, in this particular decision, uh, you made a mistake. This is what you did, and this is why it doesn't meet our cultural expectations and why it's revealing to me that you have a skill that we need to sharpen so that you can do your job better in the future. So let's clarify the cultural expectations of how we do things at Gateway, and then let's talk about do you need any help to learn the skills to do this better next time? Well, after that conversation, I had clar- I, we had discussed the mistake, we had developed a plan to fix the mistake, and then I said, now, I know you can do this, I want to affirm you in it, you consistently do a good job in so many other areas, let's fix this one, and let's get back to being the effective worker that I know you can be. So I want to expect mistakes and fix them, but also be affirming of the person and of the other work that they've done or are doing, and to stand with them to get the job done moving forward. Well, then last, the last step in effective delegation is to replace anyone you don't trust, not just anyone who makes mistakes. So who do you replace when you've delegated something to someone and you just don't think it's working? Well, it's not because they made a mistake or they had a bad day or there was a shortcoming. You replace someone in your delegation line of communication when you no longer trust them. You don't trust them on the skill side. They just don't have what it takes to get the job done. You don't trust them on the culture side. They no longer fit into who you are, what you're doing, or how your organization wants to work. You just don't trust them anymore. You don't trust them because they've failed a repeatedly number of times, and even though you fixed the mistakes and corrected them and infirmed them and encouraged them, they still keep making the same or similar mistakes. Those are people that have to be replaced. But I want to underscore, that does not invalidate the importance of or the power of delegation. It just means that for whatever reason, this one person didn't work out like you hoped, and now you need to move on to someone else. So today we've talked about delegation. It's an important skill for ministry leaders. We've gotten a new perspective on delegation, looked at some reasons why delegation is difficult, exploded some myths about delegation, and then looked at seven steps, seven keys, if you will, to being a more effective delegator in organizational leadership. This is a skill you can learn. It gets better with practice. It's something that you can take a step back from and reflect on and actually intentionally do that will both enhance your performance as a leader and expand the impact of your organization. Delegation, it's an important asset for leadership today. Do it well as you lead on.